Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, I am so excited. We get to speak with the CFO of one of the hottest initial public offerings over the past few years, if not the hottest uh, public offering so far this year, based on how much the price popped. We're talking, of course, about uh, Zoom video communications. Kelly Steckelberg, the chief financial officer of the company, joins us right now from San Jose, California. Kelly, congratulations on initial public offering that by most measures was absolutely a blowout success. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So I want to talk about profitability because Zoom was one of the few unicorns that is coming uh, to market with an IPO and actually making money. How important is that to you to continue to make money even as you invest in the business? Well, we're really focused on continuing to grow and invest for growth and taking market share. That is our primary objective. And yet we do that at the company with discipline and we're very thoughtful about it. So ensuring that the investments we're making in growth are you know, giving us the proper returns. That's how we think about it. We're, we're very frugal in the way that we approach it in general. So Kelly, can you give us a sense of how you think about your business? I'm guessing it's more than simply video conferencing. So give us a sense of what you view as your market opportunity that you, uh, your Absolutely. company goes after. Yeah, thank you. So we really view that Video is the future of communications. Video is the new voice is how we think about it. So we think that you, it's going to become ubiquitous in the way that people communicate. And we're really changing the way that people use video every day. So, for example, when we did our roadshow a couple weeks ago, Eric zoomed into all of the meetings. So I traveled, but he zoomed. So I think this is the first time that a CEO has not traveled in the way and that it was really powerful. For example, we even we had a lunch in New York for 200 people and Eric zoomed. He's on a huge screen there and everybody could communicate with him. It was amazing. How much does your business model rely on an infrastructure upgrade to 5G? Because I know people have been talking about how that will be a game changer in terms of how people interface with one another via video. So how are you sort of thinking about that evolution? Yeah, so we have our own data set of strategy and our platform, which allows people to have a really high-quality streaming video experience today, whatever network that they're working on. That's one of the really unique things about Zoom. It's adaptable to people's device and network capabilities. So when we think about 5G, we just think that this is bringing more opportunities for people to use video in, in other places, on the go. We're not reliant upon it, though. We just think it's going to extend the opportunity for us. Kelly, give us a sense of the competitive landscape that Zoom participates in. Yeah, there are lots of legacy providers out there that we have seen. I think the thing to remember is that what's unique about Zoom, it was built from the ground up to be video first. So everything about our product, our user interface, our technology, our data center approach is geared towards being video first. And a lot of the legacy players that are out there today they were built for another purpose. They were built for screen sharing or they were built to be an audio first and video came later. And just think about it, you need a very different approach to have a high quality, real-time streaming video. And that's really what makes 
Zoom so unique and so much better than some of the legacy providers. One concern that I'm sure a lot of companies have is privacy, because if they are conducting meetings uh, and chats through the Zoom technology, that could potentially expose private information. How do you how do you counter those concerns? Of course, security and privacy is at the forefront of everything that we do. We have a CIO and a CISO that think about this every single day. And the product itself was architected to ensure that meeting data, if you record meeting data, you have the opportunity to either record it into your own, for example, on your own premises or in our cloud, which is highly secure because it's our own private cloud data center that we're running. So, Kelly, just give us a sense of kind of what are the growth drivers uh, for your company? Obviously, the company has a tremendous valuation in the public marketplace. Obviously, the market is certainly expecting strong growth. What are the growth drivers? Yeah, so there are really three key growth initiatives we're focused on this year. It's continuing to move up market and expanding into the enterprise, which is a key opportunity for us. It is continuing to grow internationally. We have a last year we had a little less than 20% of our revenue came from international markets. And so there's tremendous opportunity ahead there as well. And then it's continued growth in Zoom Phone, which was a new product that became GA in January. We're really excited about it. It extends our product suite from you know video and now into audio Zoom Phone as well. What's the barrier to entry at this point, given the fact that com- big companies are uh, having their own in-house kinds of operations where they can interface with each other via video? Yeah, I think it's it's one thing to, to do video. It's another thing to do video in an enterprise-grade level and to do it really with reliability and quality every single time that somebody joins. The unique thing about Zoom and because of the way that our architecture was built is you can have up to 40% packet loss, so up to 40% data loss and still have a great experience. Other providers we see, you start to have a degraded experience when you're like at 15% packet loss. So that really speaks to the investment in the, in the infrastructure and the architecture that we have built and the adaptability of our platform to meet the needs of people that are, again, on the go using different devices in different locations. Kelly, is, is M&A a part of Zoom's growth strategy going forward? You know, it hasn't been historically, but it's certainly something that we will continue to look for if we could find a great company that could be additive either from a culture and a you know um, talent perspective and or technology perspective, we would certainly be open to that. And we're always looking for great opportunities in that area. One thing that I'm curious about, uh, just quickly hear from you, Kelly, as we see this roster of IPOs line up for later this year, uh, what sort of the takeaway that you learned from the whole IPO process right now as a unicorn? (laughs) (laughs) That, you know, there are many great companies, as you said, coming to market, and there is really strong investor demand for great companies and great performance. And, you know, we're really focused on continuing to execute because that's what we can Um, we can manage and we can control. And I think that's what I learned. That's what investors want to hear is the confidence in the management team that they're going to continue to focus on keeping the investors, um, I think, interest at heart while continuing to grow and do it thoughtfully. Kelly, just real quickly, what's the biggest risk to your growth story? It's, It's our own execution, right? It really comes down to our team and our ability to continue to execute, which is what we focus on every single day when we get up and come to work. Kelly Stuckelberg, thank you very much. Kelly is the Chief Financial Officer from Zoom Video Communications, joining us on the phone from San Jose.
Right now, we are hitting new record highs on both the S&P and the NASDAQ in the United States, which has been the sweet spot globally in terms of economic growth as well as asset flow, at least in 2019. Joining us now to talk about whether that can continue is Clive Gilmore. He's CEO and Group Chief Investment Officer at Mondrian Investment Partners, overseeing about $50 billion from London, usually, but he is joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Clive, I do want to ask, do you think from your vantage point that the U.S. is still the place to go or that this rally is basically at its peak and is going to peter out? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I've been reflecting recently on the different forms of capitalism that exist in the United States and elsewhere. In the United States, the return to shareholder is sacrosanct. In Japan, in continental Europe in particular, they want to find a better balance between labour and capital. The argument they use is that's a better long-term methodology, whereas the US one is used for short-term gain. So the question is, are we still on a run of backing economic elements like low interest rates that support that short-termism, or are we going to see a gradual shift to the longer term? International markets trade at a discount, a significant discount in some cases. So perhaps we're at the pitch point where people should consider investing more internationally than in the United States alone. Well, it's interesting. I was I was looking at just the year-to-day performance from you know the, the stocks or the CAC or the DAX index. Europe, the performance there is essentially on par with the S&P. So we're seeing European equities. So it doesn't feel like there's quote-unquote value in European markets. How do you view some of the developed European markets? Yeah, well, in answer to the first question, you know, I talked about that different form of capitalism. One way that reflects itself is in sectorial splits between markets on a global basis. So the US has a significantly larger piece in technology, and it's that technology part of the market that's driven, to a great extent, the US higher, through the NASDAQ outperforming the S&P significantly. If you look at the rest of the world, why has there been an adjustment? just like there has been with the S&P, it's merely an adjustment back to an interest rate policy that seems to be underwriting stock markets. In other words, a move back towards either zero or negative real interest rates, which we personally believe is unsustainable on a long-term basis. What you're saying is actually fascinating, which is at a certain point, investors aren't going to just look for people, uh, for, for companies to give them as much money as possible in the form of, sh- of share buybacks and, and dividends. And they're actually going to start looking at sort of the sort of social implications and the investments. And we have actually started to see a shift in that way in the United States. What makes you think that that shift will lead investors overseas? Well, that argument about sustainability is obviously a really, really strong one. And the way we analyze equities at Mondrian is to use a dividend discount model. So that takes the dividends today and looks at the expected future growth in those dividends. So sustainability is a key element of what we do, especially as you look out after year three, for example. So no one knows when the exact moment will be when that will change. All we can say is the skew of outcomes is increasingly on the upside for investing outside the United States relative to in the United States. And indeed, we do three DDM models, one on a central case, one on a worst, one on a best. And even though central case real returns are lower because markets have gone up, the skew is still positive, whereas in the US increasingly, that skew is looking negative. You mentioned Japan earlier. What is your view 
on Japan, uh, given that they've, you know, the stagnation the economy's dealt with over the last decade or so? Yeah, it's a good question. I started my career in Japan in the early 1980s, and pretty much from about 1990 onwards, Japan was a no-go area. And it was a no-go area because the market had become inflated, but more pertinently, perhaps, because companies there gave little regard to shareholders and certainly had an alarmingly low return on equity, for example. What's happened over the last 30 years is perhaps testament to the fact that Japan has a dyed-in-the-wool approach. In other words, it doesn't wish to change that much. However, in the recent past, they have begun to embrace some of Abe's reforms in the extent that they are now looking at trying to improve ROE and also look at dividends as a way forward for shareholders. And that's crucial because, remember, the Japanese have a rapidly aging population with incredibly low bond yields and a demand for income from that aging uh, population. So dividends from equities are becoming an increasingly large part of that. We're still actually underweight in Japan for choice, but only just. And that is against a position of being significantly underweight for most of the last 20 years. Clive Gilmore, thank you so much. Clive Gilmore is the CEO and Group CIO of Mondrian Investment Partners. Uh, joining us uh, today in New York on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Right now, uh, I think we do have Bruce Levine from the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, just let's get us started with a sense of what your team is working on in layman's terms. What we're working on is using the patient's own immune system and retraining it to recognize cancer. Now, uh, this is uh, a, uh, uh, not intuitive because the immune system is designed to recognize foreign invaders and cancer is derived from your own cells. So what we're doing is putting in a genetically engineered receptor that makes your immune systems recognize cancer. So Bruce, kind of give us a sense of kind of where you are in your research. Where is it in a kind of go-to-market type scenario? Where are you and your team right now? Well, we treated three patients in 2010 that had between three and a half and eight pounds of leukemia destroyed. These are patients that had no other options. Based on those reports, we signed an alliance with 20, in 2012 with Novartis to develop this technology and commercialize it, uh, which they have. They uh, conducted two global pivotal clinical trials, one in pediatric leukemia and another in lymphoma, received FDA approval August 30th, 2017 uh, for pediatric leukemia, and May 1st for lymphoma. So this was the first FDA-approved gene therapy. There is another uh, product on the market for lymphoma. That's Gilead Kites Yescarta. At Penn, we're focused on the next generation of these therapies, making them smarter, going into solid cancers, and we have a Penn spin-out immunity that is developing some of these next-generation therapies. 
Bruce, it's incredibly exciting for me to hear what you're working on because there have been so many uh, cancers that have killed people who we all uh, have been close to. So to think that there could be some kind of uh, remedy, new remedy, is very exciting. I'm just wondering about the sort of standardization of some of these uh, CAR T uh, uh, cell therapies, just considering the fact that you have to use people's own cells. They tend to be much more expensive. And I'm just wondering what the focus is on trying to sort of streamline them so they can be used in a more broad-based level. Yeah, so the challenge here is the raw material is the patient's own cells, and it varies every time. As far as standardization, we are making improvements in the manufacturing, implementing automation, make, making the process uh, shorter. Uh, but uh, we will go from uh, what is now a three-week turnaround to maybe a two-week or shorter turnaround. Now, this does have implications on scale. It's not really scaling up. You can't scale to a 5,000 liter or 10,000 liter lot, but we can improve what we're uh, doing. And I would say, think of this as a remote organ transplant or remote stem cell transplant rather than something you're going to have on a, on a shelf. Now, I can speak to you about these so-called off-the-shelf cell therapies and there, there is justification for that because there are patients from whom we don't get enough good cells to generate a product. But the issue for these is just like I can't give you my own liver without you being on lifelong immunosuppression, those off-the-shelf therapies don't last very long and patients have to transition to another definitive therapy. Bruce Levine, thank you so much. Bruce Levine is a Barbara and Edward Netter professor in gene, uh, cancer gene therapy. He's at the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a co-founder of T-Immunity, a Penn spin-out uh, working with Novartis. Let's switch gears right now to the home sharing business. It was reported today that Marriott International is expanding its home sharing business to the U.S. as Airbnb diversifies its own business ahead of an expected initial public offering. To get us up to speed on this story, we welcome Patrick Clark. Uh, Pat is real estate a reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Pat, thanks so much for being with us. So this is so Marriott already has a home sharing business, but they're just they're bringing it to the U.S. Is that the news here? That's right. What they've called it, they've called in the past a home sharing pilot. Started in London, I think, in May 2018. They they proclaimed that a success and expanded to Paris, Rome, and Lisbon. Now uh, they're bringing it to the U.S. and they're also expanding it outside the U.S. I think it's going to be a hundred um, destinations around the world. Uh, many of them real sort of tourism spots, um, Bar Harbor in the U.S., Lake Tahoe, I think I saw St. Bart's, um, the Amalfi Coast of Italy. So those types sounds of pretty good to me. It sounds pretty good to me, too, I will say. Um, I have to wonder, I'm trying to understand, they're ca trying to counter the Airbnbs of the world. That's sort of how this was framed. You're kind of shaking your head a little bit, and I'm wondering, is it really? Because home rental, uh, that kind of concept is evocative of a different different kind of model than Airbnbs, perhaps? All of these models are converging on themselves, I think. I mean, the Marriott will do something that is doing something that looks like home sharing. Um, I don't know that they're doing it for the, the reason why uh, people use a home share to find a place to stay in New York, right? Which is often because they want, um, 
a cheaper, maybe also a slightly different version of what they would get um, in a hotel. In, in, you know, I stay in, I rent homes with my family when we go on vacation because we want the space and we want, you know, separate bedrooms and a kitchen and all of that. And we sometimes do it through Airbnb or VRBO. But, but um, yeah, I think you're, as you say, that's sort of a home rental business, which makes sense as an extension of, of sort of Marriott's bread and butter, right? If I'm a Marriott loyalty program member, and I travel for business all the time, and I accrue points, and now I want to go on vacation with my family. And what I want is a home rental, not a not a suite in a hotel somewhere. It makes sense for Marriott to be able to offer me that home rental. Now, is that direct competition with Airbnb? In a way, it is, because I would um, otherwise go and book that home on Airbnb instead of, uh, you know, instead of staying inside the sort of Marriott loyalty ecosystem. Now, um, does Airbnb, you know, the amount of crossover is sort of a point of contention. I would say that the hotel companies have largely said, many of them have said, it's a different guest than the one that that we're serving. So what has been just overall the Airbnb impact on the hotel business? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I think Airbnb says they have 6 million listings around the world. So that's just a lot of supply. Um, I think it depends on on the place. There are, you know, in some places you could say there are. I mean, in New York, you have thousands, tens of thousands of more sort of places to stay than you would pre Airbnb. Uh, whether or not that has uh, had an impact on how much a hotel in New York can get for its room, I guess is a little bit murky. You would think it would have to have some impact. Uh, there's also seems to be, you know, virtually limitless demand for hotel rooms in Manhattan. They add. Uh, you know, they, they had thousands of, of hotel rooms in New York every year and, and without um, seemingly a, a, a large impact on occupancy rates. So, um, you know, it's 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 unclear yeah. who's threatening here, who here, right? Is 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 Mary going to take a bite out of Airbnb's business with this new offering? I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Is, is are they defending themselves? Do they, are they worried about losing business? Pat Clark. Thank you so much for that. Pat Clark is a real estate reporter here at Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.